Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Looking fantastic as usual. Well, I'm going to... I'm looking forward to continuing our study this morning. You guys uh, enjoying this uh, study in Romans so far? So far, so good? All right, do me a favor and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up where we left off uh, last week, and I'm going to jump right into it this morning. Uh, Romans, the most comprehensive expression of theology in the entire Bible. Some call it the gospel according to Paul, the theme If you're just tuning in to this study for the first time, the theme is God's righteousness, our iniquity, which is a problem, and God's remedy through grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. So picking up where we left off last week, so far through Romans, we've seen each part of the Trinity at work. Now we see that first graphic on the screen. We've seen God the Father in creations, Romans chapter 1. We've seen God the Son, Jesus, in salvation, Romans chapter 3 through chapter 7, verse 25. And here we are studying throughout chapter 8, the Holy Spirit God the Holy Spirit on full display through sanctification, Romans chapter 8, 1 through 39. The the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans up until chapter 8 had only been mentioned two times. However, in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times. Sanctification. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in the regenerated life of a believer. Delivering the believer from the power of sin and performing all of God's will in the life of that believer. So where did we leave off? We left off with verses 16 and 17. So let's take a look there. Verse 16, as a runner into 17, read, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17. And if children... If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, if, this word if actually is better transliterated as since, since indeed we suffer with them, because in regards to suffering with Christ, we know that there's no if about suffering in this life, is there? But since indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, to to share in the glory of Christ. To share in the glory of Christ. We cannot even begin to imagine what that means or what that looks like, can we, church? So if we suffer, then we'll glory. Since indeed we suffer. Why do Christians have trials in life? Why do Christians have trials? Jesus suffered trials. We know that, don't we? All of the apostles suffered, certainly. 
Jesus even promised us that we would have trials in John chapter 16, verse 33. It's just a part of this life. It's just a part of it, isn't it, church? There are truly only two possible errors that we can make, though, when it comes to suffering and trials in life. Number one would be not to anticipate them. Not to anticipate them. You know, the health and wellness doctrine is going to have a hard time with that, right? It's a critical error. That's what's so dangerous about that false teaching. If we don't anticipate them, we are in a grave error in regards to trials. And the second mistake that we can make or error that we can make is in the controlling fear of trials, just living our lives from a position of fear for what may come and what we may have to go through. Trials will come, but we shouldn't let the fear of them control us, and we shouldn't pretend that they don't happen. Why do Christians have trials? Can I see this graphic on the screen? A few examples, surely not conclusive. This is, comes to us from Hal Lindsey's Combat Faith. To glorify God, according to Daniel chapter 3. To be disciplined for known sin, according to Hebrews, James, Romans, and 1 John. To prevent us from falling into sin, according to Peter. To keep us from pride. Paul was kept from pride by his thorn in the flesh, wasn't he? According to 2 Corinthians, Galatians. To build faith. We go through trials to build faith as well, according to Peter. According to Paul in Romans chapter 5, we learned that trials, suffering, causes us to grow as well. To teach obedience and discipline, according to Paul in Acts chapter 9 and Philippians chapter 4. To equip us to comfort others as well and to prove the reality of Christ in us, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians. And also, and this one's interesting, the last one on the list, for testimony to the angels. They find you quite fascinating. Did you know that? They find you quite fascinating. And how you suffer and the trials that you go through is a testimony to Christ's goodness, to his divine plan for man. So if you're a note taker, I know some of you guys are, if you've got your pen out, this morning's sermon title is this, From Suffering to Glory. From Suffering to Glory. Verse 18, let's get to it. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For I consider, he says, in the old King James, it says, I reckon. So it was obviously written by a southerner, right? <laughs> I reckon. The word reckon there, it actually has a similar, uh, the same meaning as to give an account for in the Greek. Or counting up the debts and the credits on the ledger. It's pretty cool, isn't it? For I give an account with the, de the debts and the ledgers and the credits in view. He reckons that the sufferings of this present time 
So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your present suffering is, but Paul says, he says, they're not worthy even to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen? Did somebody in here need to hear that this morning? Oh, God is good. I can feel the Holy Spirit so strong in here right now. You know, he's always with us, but there are other times where we're just in tune more with him, right? He's here, church. He's always with you. It is imperative, church, imperative that we maintain a divine perspective in our lives. This divine perspective, this life is but a teardrop in the ocean of time. Think about eternity. That's a really, really long time. Think about, like, I always love to mention, you know, uh, 78 years right now is the average lifespan, right? It's also the average age of death from COVID-19, interestingly enough. You should be real afraid of that one, right? In any case, 78 years in, a ter- in eternity? Guys, church. Jesus suffered trial. The apostles suffered trials. Jesus promises us trials. 2 Corinthians, I'm going to jump over there for a minute. Chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, Paul, same author, writes this in regards to seeing the invisible. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17. For our light affliction, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Keep in mind who's writing this to you right now. Paul was imprisoned. Paul was imprisoned. He was uh, nearly killed. He was hated and reviled by his former colleagues. And he calls this light affliction. Light affliction which is but for a moment. This is divine perspective in action. And we need some more of it in our own lives. Amen? It's this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Ah, to live a life with such a perspective, hmm? Let's jump back over to Romans chapter 8, verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Remember that term, sons of God, we studied it last week. It means a direct spirit creation. Not created of the flesh, but created by God himself. When you surrender your heart, and Paul talks about uh, a new creation being formed. It is a new spiritual creation. You become a direct spirit creation of God. And that's in view in Genesis chapter 6 and John chapter 1. I've always found this line very interesting because it brings up a whole conversation. Just this, this verse and the next couple of verses. The earnest expectation of the creation, 
So the whole creation, every created thing has an expectation and it eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. We're, gonna, we're, we're, we're having some serious perspective conversations this morning, okay? Man's fall, Adam and Eve, man's fall in the garden is how we found ourselves in this situation, okay? This is how we found ourselves in this, these bodies that we have, right? We, we're dressing up all nice. We're looking sharp and fancy today, right? Feeling good? Well, this is how we found ourselves in this body. What's the truth about this body? What is the truth about this body that we're all too well aware of, unfortunately, right? The sin that's within it, right? The death that is in it. The sickness that is in it. The filth about it, by the way. Isn't everything just kind of dirty? Think about it. I mean, seriously. I mean, there is so much about this body that just doesn't seem to me to be the way God would have initially designed it, you know? Is it just me? I'm just saying, I can't even look at a piece of pizza without gaining five pounds. That just doesn't seem right. Are you with me? I can't even wear a white shirt for 10 minutes without spilling something on it. It's terrible. That probably is just me. I don't know. Forget, I mean, forget about dusting. I remember when I was a kid and I'd, my mom would give me a chore. Dusting was always the worst one, right? Because by the time you get all the way over to the other side of the room, where you started is dirty again. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm telling you. You know, quantum physicists, quantum physicists believe that for creation week to have happened the way that the Bible tells us it happened, God would have to exist in 10 dimensions. Maybe 11, they say. Uh, thus, being made in the image of God when Adam fell, he likely also fell dimensionally, okay? I mean, here, let me break this down for you. What, how do we exist? Height, width, girth, three dimensions, right? Everybody makes a big deal out of a, like, if you got a, for it wasn't 3D TV a big thing a while ago? Now they've got 4K and all that stuff. I don't even know what that means, right? We exist in, we're three-dimensional, and then Einstein over 100 years ago proved that time is measurable, thus it is unique to our existence dimensionally as well. That's, that's about the most that we can experience. And then we know that at least God must exist in one more because we can feel him, we see him moving, we see him fulfilling prophecy, but we can't see him. So we know there's at least one more dimension, but the quantum physicists tell us he's got to exist in 10. I don't even know how to do the math on that, right? The point is, though, is that when Adam fell in the garden, since he was made in God's own likeness, he likely fell dimensionally. He must have fallen dimensionally because at one point he was eternal. He never got sick. He never got old. He never died. He was very different than this body. The world was very different than the world that we experience today. No beginning, no end, no death, no decay, 
not trapped in four dimensions with sin, death, sickness, and filth in a prison of time. Truly. God is not trapped dimensionally as we are. No beginning, no end, no death, no decay. That was the original design. And earth and all the rest of creation got roped into this prison of time with us because it was made for us. That's what's in view here. So guess what? The creation, it wants Jesus to come back too. Verse 20, let's keep reading. For the creation was subjected to futility, which you could also say frailty, purposelessness, failure, decay, perishable. That's important. Not willingly was it subjected. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So there is hope for restoration, and we'll get there in verse 24. Because, verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. A better translation for corruption here is decay. The bondage of decay into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You didn't know that the Bible talked about thermodynamics, did you? The Bible is such a cool book. It talks about, literally, thermodynamics. Well, did you know the second law of thermodynamics was actually just mentioned by Paul right here. Can I take a look at this next graphic? I'm going to give you a little bit more information than you even need, okay? The first law of thermodynamics, uh, conservation of matter and energy, okay? You, you You can't do it. You'll never be able to conserve enough energy. Second law, entropy, the bondage of decay. There it is right there. The bondage of, Paul just told us in verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of decay. And the third law, everything has a positive, finite entropy. Entropy, what's entropy? Well, I underlined the important part for you, but I'll just read through it for the sake of reading through it. A thermodynamic quantity representing the unavailability of a system's thermal energy for conservation into mechanical work. Everybody with me so far? Yeah, right. Often interpreted as the degree of disorder or randomness in the system. Underlined section, the second law of thermodynamics says this. It says that entropy always increases with Time, gradual decline into disorder. That's what this world is experiencing right now. I know uh, that when most of you hear a gradual decline into disorder, you're probably thinking about what it's like trying to get your kids ready for school on time in the morning or getting them here, right? Or the laundry maybe, right? But let me break this down a little bit for you. The universe is cooling, which would suggest a hot start and a creation point. The speed of light is slowing down. Did you know that? They've been measuring that for over 150 years. It's slowing down. The point is, is the very moment that Adam fell in the garden, the creation began dying with us from order into chaos, 
from order into chaos. The world cosmos literally means order. Did you know? It means order. But the word from order is descending into chaos. Uh, and it, boy, is it. Have you looked around lately? Have you read, by the way, in Revelation and in the Gospels what happens to the earth in the end times? You recall what it says? Chaos, earthquakes, tornadoes, drought, floods, famines, asteroids, right? I'm just telling you, church, chaos. It, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how much money you steal from the American people and give to UN committees uh, to, to try to advance climate change initiatives. It's not going to help. From order, this whole world is descending into chaos. Why? Sin and death, it has fallen. It has fallen. I don't care how much you love the planet. You're not going to be able to stop that, okay? You know? Hug a tree, right? I don't care. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, church... No, no technocratic oligarchical transfer of power is going to stop that. We know that's what climate change is really about anyway, right? The point is, is that the world is dying with you. The world is dying with you. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans. The whole creation groans. This is the first of three different groans in the next few verses. The whole creation is currently suffering. The whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs un together until now, verse 23. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. The first fruits, right? Elsewhere, uh, the Holy Spirit is called a deposit. That's basically what the first fruits means. A deposit, a down payment, or an earnest guaranteeing your inheritance, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. The term groan here is in the present tense, which it means we ourselves keep on groaning. We keep on groaning within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Amen? In one sense, um, in one sense, each believer has already received adoption because he has received the spirit of sonship, right? We've studied that, uh, especially in Ephesians. You've literally been adopted and you are a son of God in title, okay? At the same time, as Romans chapter 8, verse 23 states, believers still anticipate the fulfillment of that, right? The completeness, the completion of that adoption, the transfiguration that comes with it, in other words, which is said to be here and elsewhere, the redemption. When this body will be redeemed. The word apelutrosin in the Greek means a release. A release or deliverance achieved by a ransom payment. The redemption of our body. 
This is called the revelation of the sons of God. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 19 here. And the glorious freedom of the children of God, he mentioned in verse 21. That's what's in view. Paul called that day the day of redemption, when all will be redeemed. And this, my friends, will happen at the rapture of the church, when we are transfigured into what we once were. So, see, all of that is at play here. That's a lot of moving parts right here in just this one section of the paragraph. We went from the Garden of Eden and God existing in multiple dimensions to the fall happening dimensionally, entropy setting in on our body and the earth itself to a glorious redemption at the transfiguration of the saints. Mm, Praise God indeed. That'll preach. (laughs) Verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Verse 25, but if we hope, and this is, this is interesting here. The word hope here, this word, this Greek word for hope here is used seven times in the New Testament, and it is always connected to the return of Jesus. Always connected to the return of Jesus. But if we hope... For what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The Greek word for hope here that I mentioned uh, is elpizo. And it is different than the way that we use the word hope in English. This we have to understand, okay? The word hope in English, it almost kind of implies doubt, doesn't it? It's kind of like, fingers crossed, well, I hope... How's the game going to go today? I hope it goes good, but, you know, there's a good chance it won't. Seriously, we understand this, right? That's when we use the word hope in our common English tongue, it almost implies an element of doubt, okay? In the Greek, it refers to a hope that is stronger, stronger than to know. To the Greeks, they don't say, oh, I hope, fingers crossed. When they say, I hope, and it is firm, it is resolute, it is actually more of a statement than even when we would say, I know, I know something. No, they say, our hope. It is certain. It is certain. Uh, it's imperative that we understand that, especially when we're studying Paul, okay? It means to trust in. It is a confidence, a sureness of future things, that is the hope that we have. When Paul talks about the hope that he has, he is not suggesting whatsoever, not even close, that there's any doubt whatsoever that it is to come to fruition, you understand. Okay? So when Paul says the hope that we have, he is essentially saying, because we know. Wow. Wow. And this is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians uh, that we read earlier, chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. He who has the strongest hope will have the greatest stability under stress. When, 
when the persecution comes, right? When the suffering comes, when the strain and the stress of it all comes, what do you have a fingers crossed? I hope this goes well kind of hope. It's not going to do you very much good, is it? No, but to know, know that your God is on your side. A firm, firm security. Mm. Why? Because you know how this all ends, don't you? You know how this all ends. And you hold what we mentioned earlier, a divine perspective. A divine perspective. Verse 26 Likewise, the Spirit also helps. This is uh, in the Greek, it's present tense verb, uh, uh, present tense verb, which basically you'd be better off to say, keeps on helping. Likewise, the Spirit also keeps on helping in our weakness, in our weaknesses. You know, I've still got this cold lingering a little bit, and uh, Ron prayed for me before service started, and he said, you know, be glorified in our weaknesses. And I was like, oh, right on time. I'm about to teach that, Ron. About to live it. Amen. He keeps on helping us in our weaknesses. Who, I don't, who needed to hear that today? Somebody? He keeps the Holy Spirit within you, in your heart, right here. He keeps on, he doesn't stop. He keeps on helping in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And this is interesting. This, I'm telling you, this one one chunk of this chapter has got so many greater conversations wrapped up in it. A lot of folks, um, when they read this, they think, well, the, maybe it's speaking in tongues, right? Because you don't understand what you're saying or what anybody else is saying, possibly, right? So some have made that suggestion. Um, but who's in, this, in the Scripture, who's praying? The Holy Spirit. Exactly. And what he is praying, Paul tells us, we can't even utter. It apparently can't even be spoken in words what he is praying for us. So he is helping you. He continues to help you. You don't even know what you need to be praying about, and he's praying it for you in such a manner that you don't even know, couldn't even speak it if you wanted to. God is so good, church. When you are lost, when you are broken, when you are weak, as he says, when you don't even know what to say or what to ask or pray, God even does that for you. That is profound. That is how much he loves you. That is how much he loves you. Well, nobody should... If we could just live our lives with this understanding and this divine perspective, it would change everything. Verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts 
knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. So even though, get this, even though the Spirit's words are not expressed, the Father knows what the Spirit is thinking and groaning immediately. This, this shows us how the Father and the Holy Spirit are connected, doesn't it? The Trinity is in, in view here. And we already know that Jesus intercedes for us in verse 34 and from Hebrews chapter 7, right? Now we've got the Holy Spirit interceding for us, and they're all in communication with the Father. And that brings us to verse 28. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 28. This is your, if you're waiting for it this morning, this is your big ticket verse, okay? Are you ready? Somebody say you're ready. ready. I haven't been making you talk very much this morning. That's not like me. So we need to get some hooping and some hollering. I think this one might get you guys excited, okay? Here's your big ticket verse out of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things, some things, work together for good. Now we know, we, we hope, I hope this works out. Really needed to. I hope that's true. It sounds really nice. No. We know that all things work together for good. That's what does all things mean? I looked it up in the Greek. You know what it means? All things. <laughs> Everything. To the good. For good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I love this setup here. We know. Because we do know, don't we, church? Amen? We do know. And if you don't, you should. And if you don't, you can know. You can know. Don't you remember this, the, the subtitle of this section? From Suffering to Glory. This is such a cool scripture. The RSV translation of this passage, it transfers, I'm going to give you a little uh, uh, diagnostic breakdown of the uh, literature. The RSV translation transfers the noun God in this passage from its textual position as an object of love to an earlier point where it is made the subject of works. Okay, stay with me here, because uh, I want to show you something pretty cool here. So that translation, moving the subjects around as it transliterates it for us, uh, on the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, on fragment P46, this scripture was found. And this is how it read with God in both of those positions. Can I see it on the screen? To them that love God, God worketh all things with them for good. Thus, 
reading it this way, if, we take, if we're taking verses 27 and 28 closely together, the complete passage essentially says this. Are you ready for it? The Holy Spirit pleads for God's people in God's own way. And in everything, as we know, he cooperates, cooperates for good with those who love God. That's pretty good, huh? That's good news. Those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that part of the passage here, those who are called according to his purpose, they are called not in the general sense in which many are called but few are chosen, right? Uh, but in that sense of God's Spirit convincing us of our sin and our misery. He is calling us, convincing us of that, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, uh, persuading and enabling us to embrace Jesus, essentially. Jesus, who is freely offered to us by the gospel. Verse 29. We're only going to go to 30 today. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. <laughs> Didn't I say there was a lot of whole conversations wrapped up in just this one chunk of scripture? Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. As frequently implied by the verb here, to know in the Old Testament. In other words, this is suggesting, the foreknowledge is suggesting that when God takes knowledge of people in his special way, he sets his choice upon them. He also predestined. Now this goes back all the way to our conversation about uh, the dimensional aspect of God. Because it's all tied together here, okay? So he foreknew us, and he predestined us. Essentially, he's saying he knew in, adva in advance and gave you a destiny. He knew in advance and gave you a destiny. He knows the end from the beginning, remember. God does not exist in our time prison of four dimensions. He exists outside of time. He has no beginning. He has no end. He'll never die, get sick, any of it. He exists in 10 or 11 different dimensions, the quantum physicists say, right? So he's not stuck in time. So people will say, well, this, is, this scripture is evidence here then that uh, of Calvinism, and God picking in winners and losers. So he picked you to save you, predestined you. So this whole thing was out of your hands from the beginning, not at all. All he's saying here is that God, I'll explain it like this. Uh, when you go to a parade, you sit down on the street and you watch the parade go by, right? The, the beginning comes here, you see the middle of it, and then you see the end of it, right? Or if you're, in this moment in your life, you're looking forward and you're looking back. I like to think about it like a chronological order if you look in your Bible and you see the chronological order of events throughout history, right? Well, we are in that timeline and we're only see we can look forward and we can look backwards, but God looks at the whole timeline from the reader's perspective. He sees the end from the beginning. 
So God can still give you free will and choose, yet know what you're going to choose before you were ever even born. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. Truly. Imagine you're sitting watching the parade go by. Now you go up in a hot air balloon and you look down on the parade. You see the beginning from the end, the whole thing all at once. Because you're not trapped in the parade of time. You're not trapped dimensionally in this life. You look at it from the creator's perspective. So God gave you free will to choose him or not choose him. If there were no free will, there would be no love. And he wanted you to know him, and he is love, so he had to give you free will. But because of his divine perspective where he is, he knew what you were going to choose. And when he knew you were going to choose him, he gave you a destiny. He chose you, gave you his favor. Understand? We could talk about that for another hour. But he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Remember at creation, what did God say? Let us make man in our own image. That was the plan. That was the plan, not entropy. Not this, right? That was the plan. And guess what? It still is. It still is, church. I always like to say when people say, I don't believe in hell because God, loving God, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? Well, first of all, he's not sending anybody to hell. And that was never his plan. You know what his plan for man was? The Garden of Eden. Guess what? That's still his plan. That's still his plan. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Mm. There is a, a, a text in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran. It's called the Qumran Rule of Community. Can we see that on the screen? I'm going to share it with you. It reads as such. From the God of knowledge comes all that is and shall be before ever they existed he established their whole design. And when, as ordained for them, they come into being, it is in accord with his glorious design that they fulfill their work, that they would be the firstborn among many brethren, in other words. Those Essenes were pretty smart. Verse 30, last verse. Moreover, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified. The people of God, church, respond to his call in faith. Remember, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. His kindness. His pe the people of God respond to his call in faith, and by faith we are justified, just as if it had never happened, right? And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, uh, he's saying, he's speaking in a future tense here, glorified. Obviously, we're not glorified yet in this body, but he has such certainty that we will be. He speaks it as though it already has. In the old Hebrew tense, in the Hebrew language, they would say, uh, uh, you know, they would speak futuristically. Uh, they didn't really have a future tense in their speech. So, uh, you know, they'd say, a king who's been uh, established this day in Israel about a baby, right? But they knew that the, the baby would one day be established. He wasn't obviously established yet, but they speak future events 
with certainty. It's pretty cool. If you ever study Hebrew, it truly is a language of faith, speaking things that are not as though they are. Um, so Paul here is speaking of the certainty of the fulfillment of our sanctification. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And so we will be. Amen? Amen. Colossians 3 verse 4 reads, When Christ who is our life appears. Take this one home with you, all right? When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Mm, amen? Whom he justified, these, these he also glorified. This is the purpose, church. This is the purpose of God's gracious predestination plan, the creation sharing, uh, the creation sharing and displaying the Creator's glory. That's what He's got in store for you. That's what He wants for you. I love it. And we'll close here today with every eye closed and every head bowed. Thank you, Leith. I don't know who in here needed to hear that this morning, but I know I did. I think a lot of us did. I think we all need to hear it, and we need to hear it over and over again. All things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. All things. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're here this morning and the Lord is moving on your heart, you're needing to surrender some things to him, you're needing to, you're needing to lay down the wishy-washy hope that we, that we toss around, that we rely on, and you want to pick up the hope that Paul shares with us, the certainty of hope. The hope that is certain for God's love for you, his plan for you, the certainty of his coming, the certainty that the Holy Spirit is working within you, that you're not alone, the certainty that the Holy Spirit is praying for you in your weakness, in your weakness, God is glorified. Because even in your weakness, he makes up the difference for you. When you don't know the words to speak, he speaks them and that and, and much more, that much more, church. If you're needing to rest into that, rest in that this morning. Just raise your hand, give it to God, whatever it is. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you love us. Lord, you love us in a way we can't comprehend. The more we study your word, the more we understand that we could never in this life understand the depth and height of your love, how far you would go for us. You love us so well and so completely, Lord Jesus. And our hearts just cry out, thank you, Lord. Thank you. See our hearts, Father. See our circumstances. See the petitions that your people are bringing you now. See what they're laying down at your feet, Lord. 
Establish in your, in your people this morning a certainty, God. A cer- the certainty of who you are, the certainty of your promises, the certainty that they're true, the certainty that they're not alone. Establish in your people that divine perspective, God. That divine perspective, that these trials that we face, as Paul said, not just these slight trials, as he said from prison, as all of his former colleagues hated and despised him, slandered him. All the trials that we go through here are nothing compared to the glory that we'll share with you. We stand on your word. We stand on that truth. We stand on that perspective. We lay hold of it this morning. We take it on in our minds that we can go forward, that we can endure, that we can persevere, as Paul said, with the help of the Holy Spirit that lives within us as we look forward to the redemption of our bodies in this whole world. Continue to strengthen us, God. Continue to grow us. Truly bring us from suffering to glory, Jesus. We thank you, Lord God. If you're here this morning and you want to say a prayer of committal, giving your heart to the Lord, proclaiming your faith, say this out loud with me this morning. All across this room, let's pray out loud. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I believe your word is true. I know it is. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. That you rose from the grave on the third day. And because you live, I will live forever with you in paradise. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. May the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you go before you, follow after you, walk alongside you, may you prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We love you guys. We'll see you tomorrow night for some fun caroling, all right? All right, we love you guys.